I'm Charlie Swenson. Um, this is the podcast to Hell and Back. Uh, you know, it's like the 65th or 70th one, amazingly. Uh, it's January 16th, 2020, and uh, it's six o'clock in Eastern, in the Eastern time zone. Um, and uh, we have a really cool thing we're gonna do these, I mean, at least my idea of cool, uh, for these next three meetings, today, next week, and the following week. And in just a second, I'm going to introduce my mm, colleague and friend, Seth Axelrod, and, and then get into a conversation with him that's going to go basically three hours. Um, I have so many questions that really I should have made it six hours about, <laughs> about it, but we'll see. Three hours is pretty good. Um, let me, let me, uh, say the context of this because I realized as I got ready to do this that this this is about the sixth interview out of all of my podcasts so it's a subset of my podcasts that have a special quality to them um, the first one was Domingo Marquez who was who suffered through or struggled through and very skillfully the hurricane in Puerto Rico in September of 2017 uh, I had one, and that went for a couple sessions. I had uh, two or three sessions with Cedar Coons, DBT expert, mindfulness expert, who talked with us about having lost her sister to suicide and how she coped with that and how she used mindfulness and other DBT skills for that. I interviewed uh, Melanie Harned for three hours. Uh, not about her own personal experience so much as uh, the experience of people with trauma and PTSD and how to help that. What are the, how to do that? What are the principles? Uh, I interviewed Andrea Rosenhaft for three hours. Andrea had, has coped for a long time with borderline personality disorder in all of its various forms and with different treatments for it, including DBT, but also transference-focused psychotherapy. It was a sort of an incredibly instructive things she had to say. Um, I interviewed Natalia Garcia, uh, who at the time was a, uh, an intern or a psychology grad student uh, from Puerto Rico, and by coincidence on the same night as the hurricane in, in September of 2017, she, uh, that her, her two-year-old son unexpectedly died in the night. Uh, and so she talked seven months later with us for a couple hours about how she coped with that and how she used things in DBT, including exposure strategies like acting opposite her emotions in order to not avoid stuff that would remind her of her child. Uh, incredibly helpful, inspiring. So these, I, these things sit inside me, having gone through them, and I think some of you who listen as instructive things. So. Basically, what am I up to with all of these? I'm up to the, a, a, a deep interest within myself that then takes over in these things of how do people get through uh, adversity, uh, hurricanes, deaths, diagnoses, uh, all these things. Uh, how do people get knocked down and then stand up again? How do they go on? when other people might stop. And, and, and within that set of questions that I have always had from the time I was a boy, I think, is the question more in my adult life of what is DBT as a vocabulary, as a dictionary essentially of tools for coping with distress and emotional dysregulation? What does it bring to bear, even if you're not in treatment, but just in your own life, when you run into adversity that's knocking you down? So that's really what these are about. And you know, that brings me around towards the one that we're gonna do now, because Seth Axelrod, first of all, is a, an esteemed colleague and a kind of a new friend for me. I've known him for a long time from a distance. But this has created an opportunity for me to begin to talk with Seth and just feel like there's a lot of things in common, a lot of sense of immediate connection. But Seth is a uh, is the director of DBT. Sir, he's a he's a uh, he's a clinical psychologist, a PhD, 
an associate professor at Yale University. Uh, is it School of Medicine? Is it, yeah. is it within the medical school that you're a professor, a, associate professor? Yes. Yeah. And he runs DBT services there, different programs. He has run conferences for a long time there every year with uh, Perry Hoffman and NEABPD uh, about borderline personality disorder that bring together uh, experts and, and professionals and researchers with family members and with clients uh, who, who struggle through these things in an extraordinary kind of thing. I was at one of them. I wish I had been at more. I, I, I said some things at one of them and watched the rest of it. Um, so he's done that, he, and he's been for many years a trainer and consultant through behavioral tech uh, in, in DBT training in lots of places. Um, so Seth has all of that to his name, and all of that would be enough to bring him to this interview and this conversation. However, uh, he also, for six years, has contended with a uh, cancer diagnosis and the um, manifestations of cancer and the consequences of cancer and the treatments of cancer and, and the complications of that in his life, his personal life, his family life, his professional life. Um, and he's still going. And, it, and you know, as cancers go, as, as he'll probably tell us a little more about this, he has a bad cancer. He has a cancer that um, he wouldn't have necessarily thought he'd be alive at this point. And he's still dealing with it. Uh, I'll let him decide within his own personal limits how much he wants to say about that. But, but it's still going on. He's still right up to this week. He's still dealing with it. He's still making decisions about it. He's still coping with the manifestations and the uncertainty of it all. And so, you know, who better to talk to a DBT expert who's coping with sort of like a hurricane that started from within um, and that really is, uh, is frightening just to hear, but then to hear about it, you know, the details, the whole thing as a big thing, and I have lots of questions about this, just coping with the fact that you now know you have cancer when you've never known that before. Like that's like a huge life transition, but then actually having it and telling one's family and telling one's spouse and telling one's colleagues and supervisees and telling one's clients at whenever you need to. It's like, oh my God, I mean, just stack these things up. So that's what we're going to talk about for three hours. That's why we've given ourselves three hours, because there's a lot to talk about. And I've had to think about, you know, so that's, that's Seth in a, uh, <laughs> a nutshell, and, uh, and, and just to get started. And I have some prompting sort of ideas and questions just to get started. But actually, the way these things go, if you've tuned into any of these interviews, I don't have no idea where we're going to end up. Um, I really don't. So it's just sort of some, what I'll call base camps, actually questions that, but we're going to wander if in the, into the woods from each base camp and see what we get to. And I'm, I'm going to be interested all the way along in uh, how Seth has applied uh, DBT principles, uh, strategies, and skills, as well as my other things uh, to cope with this uh with this and how how is he using because i think this could be of interest way way beyond people who are listening in who have cancer or or are close to someone who have cancer because it's also just how do you apply mindfulness to adversity how do you apply wise mind to adversity how do you apply radical acceptance from dbt one of the biggest skills to adversity and how do you apply tolerating distress with crisis survival strategies to this and how do you apply coping ahead and all these other things that when you open up dbt's toolbox it kind of goes on and on and on so we'll get into whatever we can get into so seth welcome um i'm so appreciative that you're willing to join us uh thank you charlie i i'd like to say i'm uh i'm filled with gratitude for the opportunity to uh, do this. I so appreciate what you do with the podcast, and I really appreciate your invitation. And um, uh, my, I've thought for a long time, I, I often think about how much to share and when to share. And in some ways, I've been extremely open. In other ways, a lot of, most often, people don't know what's happening with me. And um, I'm really, uh, I'm really looking forward to this challenge of of 
sorting through this in this kind of personal way with you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds. Um, I've, I've been reflecting a lot since I talked to you originally about this possibility and then you invited me and my mind just keeps going in different directions of things that could be discussed. And so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to, to um, sharing and also uh, I appreciate your um, leading us through the things that strike you as we kind of go uh, you sure. know, through this. Uh, but everything yeah. you said, uh, I connect with, you know, it, it, you, you, uh, uh, the introduction I really appreciate because I think it really captured the experience of, of, mm. of that, of um, using these principles, using other things, trying to draw from them. And, um, and my hope that this does uh, offer something to people, not mm. only what you said, not only for cancer, but in general. Um, uh, one thing I shared with you, uh, that for years before I had this diagnosis, uh, and I was uh, practicing DBT and teaching these skills, and one thing I would say is that this is a toolkit. These are tools to deal with whatever life sends you. And and now here I am. And and when the diagnosis came, that was my that was what occurred to me almost immediately was, okay, now I can put my money where my mouth is. What am I going to do? Mm. And mm. I went to my skills. Was that you know, a starting point? You're all, already the first thing I was going to ask is what prompted you to actually be willing to come on. It's different to talk to so, somebody you know about what's going on with you than to get on a podcast. As I've learned, I'm talking and I have no idea who's listening now, who's going to listen next week, who's going to listen next year. It's a weird, multi tiered audience that you can't see. <laughs> yeah. So. It's it's a challenge to then say say personal things. So actually, there's many ways to do it. But the fact that you and I can talk to each other is one of the answers to that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a little terrifying, you know, this idea of kind of sharing in this way. And um, on the other hand, when you have something like cancer, it, it's kind of this bombshell that people get hit with. You know, when you meet someone, someone doesn't know, and it's like, oh, you have cancer it's kind of this huge wall that suddenly breaks down and people are shocked by. So in some sense, one thing that occurs to me is that I will run into people, people are gonna meet me already knowing. And in a sense, that's really helpful because then I don't have to worry about that shock factor um, because right. it is something, I, and I know we'll talk about this, uh, that I have brought up with my, with my clients or patients, um, I'm in a hospital, setting so patients generally um that i don't always raise it but sometimes i will and uh how in, in a way how nice that it's already out there you mm. know mm. and um i'm also aware something i mentioned is i i do a lot of training in my setting and i'm aware that some of those individuals i i expect will hear of this mm -hmm. and again um how how helpful for them to know for them to hear about it because how else do you kind of say oh come, come you know um uh hi hi good to meet you i have cancer you know it's kind of a <laughs> good it's, it's, it's good to meet thing. you i have cancer and then have the other person say could you spend three hours telling me about all the details i mean no people people are curious and people are avoidant I think probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had cancer, but you know, you, you, you and I talked briefly about like when Natalia Garcia talked about having lost her child and what a shock that was and how painful that was and how her closest friends who were also mothers of two year olds, mm. how she noticed that they didn't know what to say to her. And so she felt like she needed to break the ice sometimes. And she ended up, as you know, because we read it on the podcast, uh, an amazing, inspiring letter to her mommy friends, as she called it, uh, to tell them how to behave, you know, how to approach her and said, please approach me, please. Yeah. When I come to your house, don't hide the photographs of your children that are on your refrigerator. I mean, don't do that. I mean, I've got to cope with things as they are. So I'm sure we'll get into that kind of stuff too. But I want to ask you one other thing, just while we're on this, like I said, I had no idea where this would go, but now we're already somewhere. 
I thought it was really interesting that in the same conversation I had with you last weekend about just the whole thing is that in the same conversation, at one point you were saying, I have a really bad diagnosis. And you also said, I have a sympathetic diagnosis mm. compared to what some other people have. And I wonder if you could say that, because I think that was pretty interesting, especially when you consider that I've also interviewed Andrea Rosenhaft with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, cancer is one of those things that um, when people find out, you know, in the, in the work setting, it gets complicated. It's a more complicated thing. In a more social setting, in a more typical setting, um, people hear of this diagnosis and you get showered with um, people wanting to rush in, wanting to help in different ways, mm. um, wanting to, uh, you know, um, uh, whether it's offering rides or, you know, when the original surgeries were happening, bringing meals and those kinds of things. Mm. Uh, there's there's all kinds of groups around the country. Uh, family members will, uh, family will lose someone to cancer and they'll start a foundation and then they'll create a weekend retreat and they'll, or they'll create um, uh, an organization for uh, yacht captains to take uh, people who are cancer survivors and families out on, on mm. yachts to have a, a wonderful day. Right. And no one's doing this for borderline personality disorder. That's a really good point. Or, or any make, mental illness. Make a, will, make a wish foundation. Make a know? wish foundation. Relay no for life. You know, it, yeah, all it, of these things are incredibly sympathetic responses to uh, a life-threatening illness. Exactly, exactly. So, so in that sense, um, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's in my family, we have, we have various kind of running jokes, you know, and, and one is the playing the cancer card. You know, I have a son who's applying for college and, and there's the question, you know, does he play it? Does he not play it? Um, and he had one interview and he did tip the card in a, in a context that where he thought it seemed to fit, but it's, you know, but playing it is something that brings stuff, you know, right. and. Right, right. I mean, it right. but it, you, I mean, you don't know what it's gonna bring. I mean. Right. When you consider that it took, from the time she started thinking about it, it took Marsha Linehan 25 or 30 years to decide to share her diagnosis and her story um, if she had cancer that had done her in when she was 18 years old, she would not have needed to wait for any reason, really, except just sort of avoidance of the pain of talking about it with people or having people go through that. But, but it's very different, isn't it? I mean, you it's, could... Yeah. It's completely different. And the, the place where um, I brought it up when we were speaking was uh, this experience that I've had in different points, particularly earlier on in the diagnosis. I don't, it still comes up now, but not quite as strongly or as frequently of feeling invisible. You know, when I had the diagnosis, I could be out in public or I was still, or I was working or I could go somewhere and nobody knows, you know, and even now, um, even though I've, I've been through a lot of surgery, I've, I'm reconstructed, uh, dressed and walking around, no one can tell there's anything going on. And in that sense, it's this invisible thing. I'm carrying this thing and yeah. nobody knows, and it can feel very isolating. And I've had the experience at different points where being mm. able to put it out there has mm. been this, um, uh, th this tremendous relief that, oh, now people know, now people can see me because this is something that I'm going through. And thinking again about mental illness, and thinking again about borderline personality disorder, and that these individuals are so often completely invisible that if they can kind of pass as not having a problem in the community, or or they do, you know, we don't know who's dealing with what, but if they feel invisible, oh, no one knows I'm being tormented, and then what? If they if people find out, then people are going to run away. You know, the, because of stigma, because of fear, because of all these things. Right. And so right. they don't have the option of typically. Now, now our conferences, which you mentioned, you know, those are like one, one of the few examples where, oh, look, here we're deliberately um, making this an okay thing to talk about and to, and to come in with and mm. be together. But that's, uh, but that's uh, 
such an exceptional fraction of the world, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I know. So, so me being, me, part of me doing this podcast, I'm not at this point in my life or, for, or at this moment motivated by this need to be seen. And yet I see that as a, as a benefit of doing this podcast is I, there's, I can't imagine how I could be more exposed, you know, unless I go on from here and I continue to do other talking things, which perhaps I'll do. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, um, or, or if you went on to a real interviewer like Rachel Maddow <laughs> or, or Anderson Cooper. And well, well, <laughs> when they call, I'll, 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 uh, I'll think about it. Yes, right. <laughs> or Oprah, when she calls you after yes. doing the Lady Gaga interview. Yes, right? yes. That she just did. Yeah, let me ask you something else. In a way, this is like winding back chronologically, just because, you know, I'm getting to know you, and some people listening to this might actually know you better than me, but I would guess in the long run, most people won't. Could you say a little about where you came from? You know, like what you, like, like yes. if you were at college, like your son, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, where'd you come from? What do you, what yeah. do, you do? What's, what has your life been made up of, up to and continuing from, but especially before the cancer diagnosis came into your life? Sure, sure. So, so going all the way back, I'm from New York. I was mm -hmm. born in New York. I hear it uh, in New your York. voice. Yes, okay. I hear it in your voice. My wife's okay. from New York. It, um, isn't, it isn't radical, but it's there. You know? It used to be stronger when I was younger. Really? Okay. But yeah, definitely. Uh, but I, I'm the younger of uh, two boys. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, in a um, middle class, lower middle class uh, family um, in New York. Uh, we moved around some. We actually made a major move. We lived in uh, Israel for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from a family that divorced. Uh, mm -hmm. And went in different directions. Ultimately, after quite a business, uh, my mother and I came back to the United States. So mm -hmm. I was a younger child, and then for quite a while, I was a, I was sort of an only child uh, with not much contact. Because your brother um, didn't come back. Your brother, brother stayed. stayed yeah, my brother stayed uh, where he is now uh, with his family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, my uh, parents both remarried. My father had two more sons, so I have younger brothers uh mm. they eventually came to the united states so mm. so in this country i've become an older brother um and have and have positive relationships with my three brothers we're not terribly close but positive relationships mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um in uh high school uh back in new york um i was when i uh first got interested in psychology got very fascinated uh, by that. And, um, and it, my plan from that point was to go on and study psychology and wow. be a psychologist. It was pretty early on that Did I really- Did you know psychologists? Did you know psychologists? I had met one, I guess um, uh, I had met one psychologist at that point when I realized that's what I wanted to do. And uh, there's an irony there in that the psychologist was back in Israel when my parents were already having trouble and already expecting to get divorced. And they brought my brother and me to a family therapy with a psychologist. And we met once or twice and it was really not very pretty. Um, I still have memories of, of my, my parents not being able to quite get along at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, and then when uh, they were going through their divorce, my parents and custody issues, and we're still in Israel, and um, and that was upsetting. Uh, my mother once brought me back to that same psychologist. Mm -hmm. I met with him once, and it was to talk about the fact that I was unhappy about my circumstance. And in that one meeting, his his conclusions were, well that kind of matches the circumstance, which I appreciated. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't really therapy, but that was kind of the experience. Um, so somewhere I must have tucked that away. I don't think I thought much about that directly, but somewhere I must have tucked that away. Uh, I, had a, I have an aunt who um, is now retired in Florida, 
who I loved, who was a clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that was also there somewhere, although I didn't think social work. I knew it was psychology. Yeah. And did you major in psychology in college? Um, yes, sort of. I, um, I started, I went to one year in um, Binghamton University, okay. uh, where I was a psychology major, but I had already had an offer to go to Cornell. Yeah. And my major uh, was going to be human development and family studies, which is what I did, which mm. had a deal for New York residents. You could take, go to that school and get that major. But I was basically a psychology major there. Mm. And I spent a lot of time in psychology mm -hmm. and went straight to graduate school in psychology. Oh, you went straight to grad school. Straight right. to, so I was pretty young, uh, went to uh, University of Kentucky. Uh, that's where I met my wife. Um, mm -hmm. my other interest along with psychology, my, uh, my hobby was, uh, theater and musical theater. And that went to singing and choruses and, um, in, and I did that through undergraduate and continued in graduate school. And when I was taking voice lessons and, uh, singing, I met my wife. She was a voice major. Um, Seth, I can't believe I didn't know this because oh, uh, with, all, with all of my DBT songs that I've written and perform in different places, if you and I do a training or something together, would, would you sing? Uh, if I was doing it with you, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> I got Kelly Kerner to sing at a training where she <laughs> didn't know it was coming and then she agreed to sing because before she was a psychologist, I don't know if you wouldn't. It's a little known fact about Kelly Kerner is she would go around making money by singing at weddings. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. She has I, a great voice. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. And, no, and but if, we, if we do a training, you're on. <laughs> all right. All right. Good. We'll have to do a couple new songs too, because that's expected of all performers. I mean, you need new songs, right? So we'll do that. <laughs> Good. Um, when you so were, anyway, so, so, so my wife and I um, came to Connecticut. I came for internship, kept doing, uh, she and I kept performing in shows and whatnot as I was an intern and a postdoc. Oh. Uh, she and I sang with um, Connecticut Opera uh, and the Opera Chorus. Uh, so, so music was, is a big part of my family. Oh, wow. And, and in there, um, we have two children. Uh, they are... Um, our daughter is 19. Our son just turned 17. Um, our daughter's a sophomore. And, um, and that's that. Oh, and we're and another uh, piece is that when we um, came back to Connecticut, we got very active in the Jew in the local Jewish community where we've got very active in our synagogue. We raised our children there. We are um, not really um, spiritual people in a in a theological sense, but we have a love for uh, tradition and ritual, and and community. And we found community there. Mm -hmm. So our our friends and our community in Connecticut have always been either in the music and theater um, area performing. Or else, uh, and or else in in our Jewish circles, mm -hmm. in most of kind of where our people, where we tend to find our people. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, at another point in all of these three hours, I think. Well, I want to get back to among all the ways you coped with cancer, have been coping with cancer, and still cope with cancer. What spiritual elements, you know, uh, either either secularly spiritual yeah. or spiritually spirit or religiously spiritual. Yes. Um, because DBT has its own spiritual elements without having to sign on to any particular religion. Yeah, I would say that, I would say that uh, if we go there, you know, 99.9, .9, you know, of it, a percent, would be the, the more that secular DBT mindfulness, there is a spiritual piece, certainly. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, but the, the, the exception piece, I think, on that more formal religious part, you know, one thing, again, this kind of sympathetic disease um, is um, I have had so many different people or groups pass on to me 
oh, we, we pray for you in this church, and oh, you're on this, um, you know, there's, there's um, uh, in Jewish, certain Jewish services, there's acknowledging the, the sick and praying for wellness for the sick, and, and, and my name, you know, people have shared that they personally have prayed, or this group have yeah. prayed, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's beautiful, and it, and, um, and I feel the, the, uh, an appreciation for this communal community aspect. Mm-hmm. I don't really attach that to a, to a God per se, or a, or a divine power, mm-hmm. but I do feel a spirituality around this notion of people um, kind, kind of um, like uh, a, uh, what's, I'm blocking on it. I'm a little bit tired, which I get in the evenings, by the way. By the way, uh, um, incidentally, when we spoke, it was in the morning. By evening, I'm a little more, I, I, I do really? wear down. Yeah, but although, which is okay. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm, I'm blocking on, on the kind of prayer, uh, the, um, the may you be happy, may you be healthy. Uh, what am I looking for? What's the words I'm looking for? The what for the, uh, the You're looking for. The wrong prayer is coming the heart, to mind. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, this is this is a, this is like embarrassing to the extreme. Isn't it is terrible? Both of us uh, now. I do Wait, this. I do this better. with a sanga, like every other week. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not I'm um, not gonna I'm not everyone gonna, listening to this is gonna. It's everyone else knows. I know. <laughs> I know. You know. And here's what's even worse. I just thought of the word Trump. I, I'm I'm not gonna trump you. <laughs> uh, by remembering right now, but I, I know exactly. It's going to pop up. Is. One of us is going to call it out in about two minutes. That's right. Five minutes. That's right. Hey, um, a question. You, you were at University yeah. of Kentucky. Remind me because you told me at one point in time, and I forget exactly the nature, you encountered Cindy Sanderson? I did. At that point or after well, that? Well, so I, I, I encountered Cindy Sanderson at the University of Kentucky. She had already left. I don't know if she was on internship when I got there or she had just finished internship, but, but she was a few years ahead of me. I see. Uh, so yeah, so I didn't, so, I, so we weren't students at the same time. Um, however, um, I went there because uh, two study personality disorders, um, Tom Whitaker was and still is there. And there, yeah, was, yeah. there was, you know, so to really dive into in an academic right. way, Right. Understanding personality disorders. It was a it was a great match for me. Yeah. And um, I also wanted to look at personality disorders uh, clinically. And and that was right around the time that Marsh's work had come out. I I started graduate school in 92. And so when I was in my in my practicum um, and was looking for, well, what options are there for, for working with personality disorders? Someone said, oh, well, there's this new thing that just came out. Take a look at this. Right. And um, I, the supervisors I had and I really were not comprehending what we were looking at. And I was trying and I was doing things, but it was bad. It was, I'll use a judgment. It was, it, it was certainly wasn't effective. Right, right. Um, and then as I was trying to sort out what this was, uh, for whatever reason, um, Cindy came back and did a one-day DBT training. Oh, and um, and suddenly I was hearing someone talk about this and and frame this and um, demonstrate uh, mindfulness uh, and 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 have us practice in ways that suddenly um, uh, made more sense. And there was it. it you know, I got to taste a little bit of what are we actually talking about here? Right. So yeah, it was yeah. very significant. It was very yeah. significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. I, I encountered her once or twice after that. I was, but I was very aware of her. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was aware of, of um, uh, if, you know, anything that she wrote, I would notice, you know, I would have yeah. an eye out. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I certainly neglected in the, uh, in the opening introduction, I realize now that um, on top of everything else I said about you professionally, that in November you won this award uh, right. with the International Society for Improvement and Teaching of DBT. Is it DBT? 
and you won the award, which is only given every two or three years. There's probably only seven or eight people that have gotten it. And it's, uh, it's the Cindy Sanderson Outstanding Educator Award in DBT internationally. And so it's like so cool that that came back around to you. Um, it, it, it really added a lot. Uh, it, it makes it um, very significant, very poignant. Um, I, I also had uh, you know, a very strong memory, I think I mentioned to you, of I was present when you received the first Cindy Sanderson Educator Award. Ah. And, and uh, it, that was a very moving um, mm. uh, experience to be mm. there when you got that award. So, so for me, th there really isn't a higher honor. Oh, that's uh, so great. Yeah. You know, and, and yours is a higher honor than mine. Yours is more legit because <laughs> I, I, I was one of the two founders of the organization. For, so for me to get that award is like there must have been a lot of conflict of interest going on. So, you know. <laughs> I, I'm going to push past. I'm going to push past. <laughs> the, the, I'm, I am not going to validate the invalid in any way, shape or form. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Now, look, my next question is really, um, so you now live in Connecticut, in New, in, I mean, you, you work in New Haven, at Yale, Yale New Haven Hospital. You live, as you told me last time, you know, 30 minutes outside of New Haven. You have a 19-year-old a and a 17-year-old host. So when you were diagnosed, they were uh, 13 and 11. Yeah. Something like that, close yes. to that, right? and uh, a boy and a girl, and the boy is now trying to get into college. The girl's already a sophomore at college. Yeah. And, um, okay, and so there you were, you're going along, and what, what started to happen that gave you a clue, uh-oh, something might be wrong, or did it just come up incidentally in a, in a laboratory examination or something? Uh, no, no, it was um, about a year uh, before the diagnosis, so going one, more, one year earlier than that, I started to develop chronic pain in my um, uh, upper uh, back on the right side and also on my uh, chest on the right side. Mm. Um, started to get um, uh, uh, these kind of terrible, knot-like experiences and in the front, um, uh, there was also, I, I try to remember when it started, at some point it turned into these kind of shock experiences, kind of like a shooting, uh, pain would occur. And that, that was kind of mysterious, it came on, I couldn't figure out. Something's happening with the sound, are you, are you hearing me okay? No, okay. yeah, there is okay. something happening. So, okay. Somebody is not I, muted. Okay. I think Let's, they muted, I think okay. they Okay. okay, so I, I started to have this, this chronic uh, pain, this daily, uh, almost continuous pain, and then sometimes it would get worse. And um, uh, for a while, I didn't know if, if I, I didn't know what was going on. Um, around the same time, my uh, wife, unfortunately, had um, uh, shingles. Uh, she had a pain thing going on. Oh, that can be so, terrible. Yeah. So yeah, she really, I mean, she got through it, but 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 um, uh, she was less able to take care of the 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 kid, the cooking and or or part things that she would do more normally. Mm -hmm. She was kind of laid out, so I was having this pain. I'm kind of ignoring it. It's getting worse. She starts getting better. She starts recovering. I start seeing doctors. I start making appointments after probably about three months of kind of mm -hmm. going through this. And um, uh, it was very mysterious, but they, um, they noticed that one of my ribs was a little bit dislocated. It was kind of not quite in place. Were you thinking cancer at that point? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, no, they noticed this rib was dislocated. Um, uh, they say it's unusual, but it can happen. They put me in physical therapy, saw a physical therapist for quite a while. Um, who would, who would try different things and it would seem like, well, maybe that's a little better, but then it wasn't. Um, I started seeing different doctors trying, um, uh, saw um, a chiropractor at one point, um, you know, trying different things. And, um, uh, oh, and then I saw a physiatrist, like a sports medicine kind of doctor, yeah. uh, different people kind of trying this. 
Meanwhile, uh, the pain did start turning into this shooting pain that would sometimes occur oh. that really became debilitating in that um, uh, if I was driving, it seemed that the way I was sitting would push on something in some way. And I could get these like shocks that got severe to the point that I would have to pull over if it started, ha if it was like really shooting, it wasn't, it was intermittent. But I got to points where I didn't, I couldn't focus on the road because wow. of what, was, what I was being hit with. Wow. And, and then there was a point where um, coming home from work, I ended up pulling over and I wasn't sure if I could get home. Wow. Um, the, the, um, uh, I had started uh, consulting and or training with behavioral tech. I actually uh, did my first um, intensive. Uh, it wasn't an issue. I was having the pain, but it wasn't a really big issue doing the part one. Mm. But the part two was when things were really getting out of control. Mm. And, um, mm. and I did that with uh, Tony um, uh, DeBose. DeBose, yeah. And so, so, you know, I was, I did, I, I, we went back and forth, but I wasn't sleeping really at that point. Uh, and then uh, the uh, physiatrist um, uh, finally said, "Okay, let's let's uh, let's get an MRI. Let's see what's happening. You know, let's see if there's something going on here." So, from the beginning of symptoms until you got an MRI, how long was that? Uh, that was almost a year. Wow. That, that was about a year. Yeah. So you um, still didn't have a diagnosis. No. Well, it was, it was a, a dislocated rib. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. And it was really really unclear. And then. When they uh, when we got it imaged, uh, then it was suddenly obvious that there was something else going on. That underneath the rib was a tumor, and the tumor was um, in the on the spine, kind of toward the inside in the upper and the thoracic spine, and and it was right kind of behind that rib. So the rib sticking out a little bit in the back, you can't see anything of the tumor because it's on the underside. Right, right. right. Um, so the tumor was. Um, it, it was, it was kind of an odd shape, but it was kind of three centimeters by at the longest, I think about six or seven centimeters kind of going along the rib, but mostly on, on the, uh, vertebra. Um, and at that point, um, my wife and I were kind of terrified. Um, kind of terrified. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was just about to comment that. You, you've been you've been living with this story for so long, but then you, when you tell it, I think, holy shit. I mean, exactly. if, I, holy if shit. I learned that, if I learned that after thinking I had a dislocated rib and other things, which is bad enough, oh my God, it would be yeah, like- that thing. And this bizarre looking thing, I got to see the thing, it's just this kind of weird mushroom-like, what is this like odd creature going on over there? Um, and, um, and one possibility, now it still wasn't clear, was this cancer. It was, this could be a cancerous thing. This could be a benign tumor, but there was some kind of tumor there. Um, and that led me to uh, start to see a, um, to see an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and uh, the orthopedic surgeon was not sure, you know, is this cancer or not, but we'll get a biopsy. Either way, he was already talking surgery. Mm. You know, that's something we're gonna have to get out of there one way or another. Mm. Um, but that was, uh, uh, it was, it was uh, one MRI, another MRI, I think about two days later, because they do it without contrast, but then they do it with contrast to see it better somehow. Um, and then it was about a week later, uh, or I think a few days later of doing a biopsy, and then almost a week later, uh, getting the here's the diagnosis. In the meanwhile, um, I work in a I work at a university. I've got access to medical journals. I'm searching. I'm looking. I'm looking at different kinds of, you know, orthopedic spine, you know, diagnostic articles and chapters and I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm I'm a psychologist. So I'm looking at pictures that superficially look like what I've got, trying to figure is this that or you know the other. Not, you know, so I probably saw about um 10 different or 12 different 
diagnoses floating around, some cancerous, some not. Um, one thing that happened around this time, um, I, I was, by the way, very open. One thing I, I did, even at that time, is uh, I was on Facebook. I have you know some security settings on my Facebook, so it's not a public Facebook. Um, but we were kind of freaking out, and I just went ahead and put this on the Facebook. Hey, here's it. You know, I called my my parents. You know, hey, this thing's going on. But for most of kind of putting the word out, you know, kind of letting anyone know, I put it there. Somehow, it seemed very clear to me that letting our kind of community, letting friends know we're going through something, was a good idea. Um, it was a it was really an unusual thing for me to do. I, I haven't been somewhere. You know, the Facebook was a, a place to. Mostly post about the kids so the grandparents can see them and, you know, right. not, a, not a big poster. You know, I would right. look and see, but right. I wouldn't post much. Right. Right. But I did post this. Yeah. Um, you know, have this thing, got to have a biopsy, got to figure out what it is. I would just kind of put all that in there. But that's interesting about you, Seth, that you, that you went in that direction. It's not like you're usually a public person about your personal life. It doesn't sound like... But you, something in you reached for community. Yes. Something you reached for social connection for, you know, whatever that would bring. Um, yeah. I think, you know, and when I've done these other interviews with people facing uh, really catastrophic events or things in their lives, um, this is always, we're, in DBT, people focus so much on behavior and, and actions and what you can do about your emotions, all of which is incredibly helpful. But you know, there's an underestimate, there's an under, uh, what do you call it? Under emphasis under, under, uh. on just reaching out to social connections, which of course everybody would agree is a good idea. But I actually, the more I do these kind of interviews with people, this comes up, two things come up now that I think of it over and over again. And you've already brought one of them up in your own way, which is humor. Mm. Humor, which is not a listed skill in DBT, but actually, it's huge. It's uh, it's humor, and then also socializing or bring, yep. reaching for social support. Humor is one that I've been thinking about a lot in preparation for this because oh. humor has been a huge piece of the coping with this, and um, you know, and and in DBT, you know, there's some things you can find in DBT, but they are understated or they are kind of minimized. You know, humor is as best I can figure, shows up in the, the distract, the wise mind accepts distracting with emotions, you know, or maybe, I mean, you're kind of, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You try to get a, a huge, something going with that's funny rather than tragic or rather than sad. I, I, I yeah. get, you know, because I definitely, there's a lot of, you know, I, for my own coping, my family's coping, um, uh, when when I've been been uh, interacted within the cancer community, and I do have various connections that I've made at different times, I'm uh, mean, still very active um, in the cancer community. In person, it, it's amazing how much laughter there is and joking around when you put a bunch of cancer patients together. Um, it's right. remarkable. Right, right, um, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, I agree with you. I agree. The humor I see is I, those two things you just said. Yeah. Um, oh, and then also the the easy manner part, which I know we're going to talk about in terms of of giving it, you know, talking to other people about it. Yeah. Humor has been huge um, yeah. for lightening up, uh, yeah. being able to talk about, you know, painful so, things. So you got this diagnosis, and after all that time, and now, of course, in one way, it, things made sense, but it, it was, I assume, terrifying just to begin yeah. with, and then. Your, t your fear must not have gone down when you learned the nature of your tumor. Yeah. Now, now there was one really interesting kind of twist. There's so many twists and turns, but there was one that was really kind of fascinating from kind of coping, a coping perspective. Yeah. When, when I had the tumor and I had the kind of the scare, I also uh, shared it with work. I also told my supervisors, you know, hey, this thing's going on. I'm getting, you know, because also I, you know, had to get MRIs and be out for this and whatever. Um, and I had... Um, one uh, supervisor, uh, an esteemed psychiatrist, he's retired now, uh, William Sledge. Oh, I uh, knew him was, well. I knew him well when I was at Yale. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, he was, he was the, um, 
uh, chief of psychiatry at the hospital. And, um, and I happened to have a meeting with him and uh, shared about, you know, we shared about what was going on. And um, <clears throat> he gave me this theory about um, that, you know, the way the, you know, mechanically, if we think about the way the rib is kind of rubbing against the vertebra, that that could create something and that would almost be like a callus. And he really looks at this and he, he you know, he's not a, you know, a specialist in this area, but what right. he sees is a benign kind of thing that occurred through this frictional process and da 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 da. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had this uh, wonderful sense of relief and I shared it with my wife and the two of us got to have this like relaxed weekend, you know, because I think it was oh. on a Friday. And we both knew, you know, like this, we don't, you know, he doesn't necessarily know what he's talking about. Right. But here's this theory that something else could be happening. Right, right. And, um, and from that weekend, and then the days we were waiting for the results, and we got it. When we got the results, it was cancer. Um, and it's a bone cancer uh, that I can label. Um, we weren't shocked. We, we were scared. We were aware this could be, very well could be cancer. Yeah. Um, but there was this really remarkable way of not getting ahead of ourselves um, by um, uh, getting this message that kind of, we don't really know, you know, who knows, you know, what it is. So it was a really remarkable thing that we went from kind of a panic mode to not being so panicked. And then when we did get hit with it, that was a huge blow but we kind of already had the shock from the first place of seeing the tumor and, and struggling with all the, you know, is that cancer? Is that cancer? You yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. It is, you know, so it was a, you know, it was a, a painful, um, there was a shock and, you know, kind of a, a, a numb, but in some ways less so than the first hearing about it and jumping to, yeah. What is that? Yeah, that makes yeah, absolutely makes sense. It's, you know, I think when you start to, when you, this is one stage of everything you've been through was first learning your diagnosis or first learning or first thinking, maybe I have something. Somebody says you have a tumor. That's already step one now. Oh, a tumor. That's a different idea. Of course, Will Sledge gave you a little relief saying, well, maybe a tumor is caused by this rubbing of bone and the oh. bone, the bone osteoclasts, which, are, which right. create bone, created a big bone tumor, which is benign or something. So I understand. But I think this, a lot of people go through this with their, whether they're, whether they're, they're getting a, di a, a diagnosis of some form of cancer or leukemia or, or diabetes or, uh, or what's, how bad is their asthma? Is this asthma that might kill them? Uh, so many, a neurological condition, like a lot of people my age, uh, who are forgetting things, oh no, do I have Alzheimer's? Uh, do I have a dementia or something? Or is this just normal? I mean, you go, and then you go back and forth. Of, there's a whole period of tur turmoil that's really hard to tolerate just there. And then when you land on a diagnosis, you hope it's not going to be a bad one. Uh, so you're, you're yeah. looking for a way out. Because it's yeah. sort of like cancer is stalking you. Yes. Yeah, but he felt so terrible when it turned out to be cancer. He was, he felt so, oh. and I had to let him know, he gave us such a gift. <laughs> That's so it's nice scary. of you to tell him that. I mean, yeah. he's a, as I remember, Will, it's a long time ago, but he was not chairman then, but he was the head of education and he was uh, a very decent person too. Mm. I'm sure that he was totally well-intended, but you know, people say things when they're totally well-intended, when you're in potentially on the edge of a cliff in your life and people say, Oh, you're not really that close to the edge of the cliff. And you're thinking, oh, that's nice of you to say, but it's yeah. actually bullshit. I mean, yeah, not that yeah. there's, it, but it, it is kind of like false hope. You're looking for it anything was. at that point. It works it, for a moment. It, 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 it was. And we were in, you know, in, in, in DBT, you know, thinking about crisis survival versus reality acceptance. We were in a crisis survival kind of place. We were in a crisis state you know, it, it, it was a false hope. It was a, you know, but, but we kind of, um, I think it was kind of an adaptive denial. We knew it was, we knew, we knew that there was no truth to oh. what was being said. It was a theory. It was, a, right. it was right. one right. guy's 
one psychiatrist's A psychiatrist of theory. all things. Right. Who's going to believe a psychiatrist about cancer? <laughs> right. I know. And yet, and yet it gave us a story that was helpful at that point um, that it we appreciated. Gave, gave you a story. You know, you and I were talking last weekend. We only have a few minutes left. By the way, mm. somebody wrote in the name of that form of meditation. Oh, of course they did. What is it? Yeah. And, and the person who wrote in is somebody you've met before is Beth McCrave. Oh, I don't know excellent. if you know Beth from yeah, New thank Hampshire. You, Beth. Yeah. So Beth, it's meta, meta meditation. Meta meditation. No, there's another word too. Loving kindness. I got a it. Loving kindness. Yeah, that's another thank word. Thank you, for Beth. It. Right. Yes. What I couldn't come up with was, uh, a love, was a loving kindness prayer. That's right. Loving kindness. There we go. Right. Um, so, you, so obviously we're going to be ending this podcast yeah. with, okay, this is the story up to now. And, um, and so I just want to ask you, I guess, at the end of that, um, I got, using this technical term that isn't that helpful, but I'm, I'm groping for a term. What, what, what kind of dysregulation did this add to what you were going through? I mean, did it add hope because, oh, maybe this is a cancer. Somebody can now do something they're going to do. Or, di or di was it just purely like, oh, my God. It, it was, there was, a, there was a dropping experience. There was like the floor dropped of, you know, it, it was, it was, um, it was really kind of a, the nightmare has happened, you know, because it was a, it was this stretch, you know, we went from this mystery problem that's been going on for a year to, oh, who cares about pain? This might be cancer. And by the way, that's been a back and forth over the years between I, I'm in chronic pain, but is pain important? Cancer is actually more important than pain. Oh yeah. Wow. So there was that whole that was that transition. That's right. Then there was the the terror of it. And then it was the floor dropping out. Um and at the same time, um in getting the diagnosis, there was the opportunity to to notice the possibility of acceptance. Because before mm -hmm. there it was it was the only thing to accept was the uncertainty. Mm. And I still, mm. uh, there's a lot of, in, in my world, there's a lot of accepting uncertainty. There's lots of uncertainties to accept. But at, at that point, there was this, um, this horrible thing was labeled. And there was both the uh, possibility of studying it, you know, for me to jump back in my journals, which I didn't do immediate. I don't know if I did it on that day or not. I certainly did it quickly but on that day there was absolutely noticing i can i can um i can work on radically accepting having this di having a diagnose having a cancer diagnosis because yeah. that that was so far out of the realm of possibility you know the tumor being there was so far out of the realm of possibility yeah. but then getting it is not a benign growth but cancer was something that I, on the day, could start making a turn from crisis mode to acceptance. And even with the uncertainty and, and accepting the uncertainty of it. And one of the things I'm gonna ask you about in more detail next time, which I think is gonna be helpful to everybody I know because I still run skills groups and my skills groups, it's every time you teach radical acceptance. What exactly does that mean? And how exactly do you do that? And of course, in the manual, there's a series of steps now in the second edition of the manual. But even after that, people are stuck with, everyone gets the idea of radical acceptance, but oh my God, to really get at what it meant to you and how much of that you've had to practice. I think I'll ask you next time to you know, go over us, go over with us in some detail um, that. So, um, much as I hate to defer this another 167 hours, we now have to stop for that many hours uh, before we resume this conversation. <laughs> and, and I want to encourage people who listen or watch to write in any emails you want to give feedback and to, and to throw in questions if you do this within the next week or so or two, uh, throw in questions that you wish I would bring up. Um, and, and also, you can certainly email me at my website where, where you get this, some of this, or at c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. Seth, are you open to anybody directly emailing you about any questions? Uh, sure. My email is easy. Uh, Seth 
period axelrod at yale period edu okay thanks for being willing to do that yeah so feel free to write anything uh and and even if this is after all of these podcasts are done getting the feedback uh is really helpful so we've sort of laid the framework by getting to the point where you are, are you know have been diagnosed and now you're beginning to cope with that and we'll come back and pick up somewhere there along with anything else that comes up in either of our minds in the next week okay and thanks seth bye